0: Um, today, we're in Romans chapter 14. We have two weeks left in this series called All Things New, where we're kind of looking at how, what the practical outworkings are of being made new in Christ. If we've been raised to walk in newness of life, as Romans 6 says, what does that look like? What does it look like to live the transformed life that Paul calls us to in the beginning of this section, Romans chapter 12? So that's what we've been unpacking these weeks and that we'll continue to unpack this week and next week. And this week, we're going to particularly talk about the subject of stewarding our Christian liberty and church unity, stewarding our Christian liberty, or you might even say our personal convictions in a way that builds church unity, not tears it apart. So let me ask you something. Have you noticed that Christians do not agree on every issue? Have you noticed that? Yeah, I mean it, it's. I mean, I. I mean, it, it's just, it's impossible. I mean, whether, and I don't care what denomination. Even within, you know, we're a part of a Baptist network, right? And so, even within that network, we don't agree on everything, right? We agree on essentials, but we, we don't agree on everything. So, even within a local church, we don't agree on everything. I heard I heard about a the um, a story about a um, a Baptist guy that got stranded on an island. And uh, he he had been stranded for years, and they they showed up to pick him up, and they were like, hey, I see you built a little place over that. What's that? He goes, that's where I live. And they said, well, what's this place over here? He goes, well, that's where I would just go to relax and, and, to, and to get away from home. I'm like, oh, interesting. And they're like, what's, what's this little place over there? He goes, well, that's, that's, that's the church where I go to worship. And they said, well, what's this place over here? He goes, well, that's where I used to worship. We had a church split, and I started a, a new church over here. So um, Christians sometimes have trouble agreeing, even with ourselves, right? So and, you know, there are some issues that two people, two Bible-believing people can, agree, can, agree, can have different views on. There are much that we agree on, but some, you can attend the same church. You can believe mostly the same things in terms of core biblical truth. But we may decide to live differently on certain issues or in certain areas, make different choices personally. And neither person may be sinning. Neither person. Or both may be sinning. Depending on how they're stewarding those decisions. And these, what we call these things, disputable matters. There are some things in the Christian life that are indisputable matters. They're not up for debate. They're not up for discussion. There are other things that are disputable. In the sense of, you're free. Make a choice. Okay? In light of wisdom, in light of what God's Word teaches you. And in a church, you have all these different viewpoints. And some things, we have chapter and verse, and we have these primary issues and Bible issues and areas where the Scripture, man, is very clear on. Then there are other areas that Scripture may not address. Or may actually say nothing is wrong with something, but someone else may have an issue with it because of their personal viewpoint, their past, their conscience may be sensitive about something. So, how do you handle these touchy subjects? How do we steward our convictions about Christian liberty and personal convictions in a church where people may have different ones? How do we do it in a way that brings unity in the local church, serves one another, and is good for our personal spiritual upbuilding and the upbuilding of others? Well, that's what Paul is unpacking for us in Romans 14. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read all of Romans 14 because we're not going to be able to cover it all verse by verse. I'm going to give you some big principles for these these guidelines, but I want us to read it all because to understand the principles, you need to understand. It's pretty clear. (laughs) It's a very self-explanatory chapter, and then at the end, we're going to get a little bit into chapter 15. So follow along with me. It's on the screen. Romans chapter 14. I'm going to go ahead and read all of it now, verses 1 through 23. Here we go. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it it is it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, some principles before we get into the principles. Understand the passage. What is Paul dealing with here? Well, what he is dealing with in this passage is, is, is not indisputable matters, as we said. It's disputable matters. For instance, if the Bible says something is a sin, it is a sin. You cannot be free in Christ to have an affair to cheat on your taxes, to slander your neighbor, or to rob a grocery store. You can't say, well, pastor, I have this personal conviction that more is always better, and that's why I'm polygamous. It doesn't work that way, right? You can't do that. Some things are black and white. We don't get the color gray. What God has clearly spoken to and said is black and white. Now, some things are a matter of personal conviction and are not Scriptural commands. Not everything is the main thing, also. Not everything is as big a deal as you think it is or as I think it is. It's okay to have different opinions and different convictions on stuff. It's okay if your neighbor and you live differently on some matters. We're going to get into what some of those matters may be in just a moment, including the matters they dealt with. So let's go there. What are the examples that they had in Rome? Because Paul wrote this to a real church struggling with real issues. Now, Rome was largely a Gentile church, right, non-Jewish church, but they did have a presence of Jewish Christians within that church who were kind of the minority presence within that church. And he gives three examples within chapter 14 of things that were being struggled with and fought over and quarreled over in different opinions. One was eating meat, one was observing religious days, and one was drinking wine. All right, those were the three areas, and it seems that the issue was due to Gentile believers mixing with some Jewish Christians, and the Jewish Christians had more sensitive consciences and, were, and were, just had different opinions on some of these things. Now, Paul clearly here is siding with the, what he calls the strong in the text, we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But some of the Jewish Christians still had trouble with these things due to their background. They thought, well, was that meat offered to an idol? Did it touch any pork when they were preparing it? Is it kosher? Oh, it's pork. Oh, well, can I eat that? I don't know. Well, Jesus did declare all all foods clean, but there was just like this deep problem with how they were raised and how they thought, and there was this confliction that some of them had. Some of them were new Christians. Do we still keep the Sabbath? Like, just like we did in the Old Testament? How about the other Old Testament festival days and things like that? They even had a fear that the wine in that day may have been offered to a false god. The problem here in chapter 14 is they're not debating on the alcoholic content of the wine. That's not what's at issue. What is at issue is whether the wine had been offered to a false god or not. That's what they're really concerned about. And so, but those are the three categories that, that, that they're struggling with. And meanwhile... You've got other folks who've come to Christ that didn't have these hangups, didn't have these issues. They didn't grow up the same way they did. They weren't taught Old Testament laws and and, and, and things that had even been added to the law to help protect you from breaking the law. And they, they just didn't have the same baggage. And so they walk in and they're like, "Hey, are you coming to the fellowship meal? And hey, we're having we're having pot roast and and we're having you know this and we're ha- you know, and, all, and 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 the newer Jewish Christian might be coming in going, "What? What well, can we do this? Can we?" Do-? And their and their conscience is is bothered by this stuff, and they start having these debates about this stuff. And Paul terms this in terms of strong and weak. It's not that one is less of a Christian. That's not his point. But one has a stronger, less easily offended conscience than the other does. The other has a weaker, more easily sensitive conscience. In the context, the stronger has come to understand what Douglas Moo writes as the implications of their faith in Christ. They both have faith in Christ, but one has come to a deeper understanding of the implications of that faith than some of the Jewish Christians at that time had come to. Now, Paul was a Jewish Christian, and he obviously had come to understand those implications. They are more mature in understanding these things. They may not be mature, however, in how they live that out in front of others. So that doesn't mean they're completely spiritually mature. I like how Pastor Jimmy Scroggins coined these things. He said, you have here in this the participators and the abstainers. That's kind of the way he coined it. And there's a lot of truth to that, but someone can be strong and be an abstainer. Someone can be weak and sinfully choose to participate. So it's not a perfect way to describe it, but, but it does make sense. As a general rule, those are good descriptions. It's it's the free in Christ crowd and the wait, just a minute crowd. How free are we, right? And that's what's at stake here in Romans chapter 14. and They're debating these things. And it's never the goal of the weak to stay weak. It's not that Paul would have them become participators, but I believe he would have us all mature to the point that our choices are made with maturity, understanding others may choose differently, and that's okay. That's okay. It's not going to wound me. If you choose to live differently, than I choose to live. Now, do we have issues like this today? Is this still a problem in the church, or is this just something they dealt with and wrong? Well, of course it's still a problem. It might not be the exact same things, but some of them are the exact same things, just maybe for different reasons. So there are issues that are not really issues of sin, but rather issues of personal conviction. So let me give you a few examples. Let's start with the dietary, since that's what the text deals with. Eating meat was an issue then. By the way, it is for some now. There are Christians that believe, due to animal rights issues and the way some things happen, due to famines and hunger in certain parts of the world, due to environmental concerns with beef, that believe that as a Christian, they should not eat meat or should not eat beef. That's their personal conviction. There are others who love ribeye and hamburger and all those sorts of things. Both exist. Both can follow Christ. How about holiday issues? Some Christian thinks it's it's actually wrong to celebrate Christmas on December 25th and we have a Christmas tree and all these decorations because of its pagan roots of the Christmas tree and things like that. If you didn't know that, hope I didn't wound your conscience with that. Uh, But obviously... I mean, I don't have that hang up, but some people do, right? Santa doesn't come to every Christian's house. Halloween is something that every Christian doesn't participate in. I know some Christians who get really weirded out if you give out candy at your door and even act like you know there is a Halloween because they're so, you know, their conscience is so sensitive to that. Same with Easter eggs, by the way. Not every Christian hunts Easter eggs on Easter because of some of the fertility God stuff and some of the roots of that, and it bothers their conscience. There was a big debate among pastors that you probably were not aware of a few years ago when Christmas fell on a Sunday. Do you remember that about three years ago? Christmas fell on a Sunday and some churches, like this one, moved our services to Saturday night. We still had corporate worship. Some people, you shouldn't do that, you know. Man, it was like this, oh, you're compromising and, oh, right? Different conscience, different issues. Some, Some say this day, some say that day. Paul says, chill out. Alcohol consumption. Some Christians choose to drink alcohol in moderation. Others feel convinced that they shouldn't do that. The Bible obviously condemns drunkenness, and it very obviously condemns the abuse of alcohol, but it does not condemn the use of alcohol in moderation. So how do we steward the disagreements of personal convictions within the church on that issue? How about education? Some people are convinced you should homeschool your children. How can you put them in a secular public school? Should send them to a Christian school. Some Christians think on the other extreme, man, we should get involved and try to change things. So we, we are involved in the public school system. Some don't necessarily have a dog in either hunt, they just make their choices. But these are things that divide Christians sometimes. Entertainment. I don't know how you can watch anything that's G or not more than G or more than PG. Some Christians watch things that are more than PG. We're not talking about getting into black and white issues again, like pornography and things of that nature. Don't misunderstand me. But even in entertainment choices, how can you go to that concert? Well, I got in my car, and I drove over there, and I bought a ticket. You know, and other people like, how can you go there and be in that environment? Wasn't there some things going on there that you wouldn't, shouldn't? And all these things, I mean, differing opinions on these things. Music, right? I grew up in an environment where I was taught that, that if you uh, listen to secular music, you're sinning, which really... As a new guy, it was kind of weird when I would go into a restaurant and I would hear secular music and I would think, am I supposed to put on headphones now? Am supposed to plug my ears? What am I supposed to do? Even Christian music is divisive among some Christians. We should only do hymns, like Paul sang, right? It's a joke, by the way. Uh, we should only do the new stuff, right? Because all of that's wonderful. That's also a joke, right? So extremes. Boycotts. I can't believe you drank coffee from that place. I remember years ago, there was a big boycott of Disney. I wonder how popular that was among Baptists in Orlando. I didn't live here then. I'm guessing probably not. Right? How can you not boycott that place? How can you boycott that? There's these different opinions. got a chapter and verse? Well, no, not really. The word boycott's not in the Bible. I'm not really... So how do you manage these decisions if you are strong or if you're weak in conscience? How do you not judge or harm your brother and... How do you fellowship and worship in harmony? You know, let me give you five principles that I think Paul lays out here at Romans. The first one is, first principle. God's welcome demands my welcome. You do not get to exclude and judge the one for that God welcomes. Verse 1, verse 3 and even in chapter 15, verse 7, we are to welcome one another. Why? Because Christ has welcomed us. You don't get to not extend a welcome to a brother that Jesus bled and died for and welcomes into his kingdom because you don't like what they do or don't do. Neither do I. You're to receive your brother. The abstainer is to welcome the participator, and the participator is to welcome the abstainer. Right? The strong is to welcome the weak, and the weak is to welcome the strong. You and I did not get to decide who's in the family. God does. And anyone who's trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior is my brother or sister, and you don't have to share my convictions about everything. It's just more Halloween candy for me and my kids. Just kidding. But you get the point. What is not okay is for someone to treat someone as lesser because they don't do what you do or they do something you don't do or whatever. They don't eat the meat, they don't drink the wine, whatever, so you don't get to roll your eyes and make them feel like less than or less spiritual than you because you think you're strong and they're weak. That's not okay either. What is not okay is what Paul lays out here for us to put up walls and barriers that prevents us from welcoming people who are in the same family that we're in, the family of God, right? A big part of Paul's point in this chapter is mind your own business. Bottom line, bottom line. Mind your own business, Stop judging, harassing, condemning your brother. You welcome who Christ has welcomed. My kids walk into the room, and I've got, me and Chris, let's say, we've invited a couple over. We're watching a football game together or something. The kids are in the back, and they're playing a game or doing something. They come out, and they see we've got company, and they come in. and They go, you're sitting in my spot, and I want to watch PJ Mask and I, you know, get out of my, you know. I'd say, first of all, you're not in charge. Secondly, these are our guests, Right? So we have welcomed them into our home, so you get to welcome them into our home. Thirdly, meet me in your room. (laughs) We need to celebrate what we have in common, not fight over what we disagree on, especially in matters that are not essential matters. Celebrate your commonality in Christ. Stop debating your differences. Celebrate matters of eternal significance. Don't be divided over matters of less significance. Celebrate what God has done in Christ. Don't be obsessed over what your brother does or doesn't do. Mind your business. You welcome who God's welcome of them demands your welcome of them in Christ. Number two, Jesus is Lord, not me. That is a big point of the first half of this. There's only one man on the throne and it ain't me and it ain't you. Jesus is Lord The the big thrust of the whole first half of the chapter Is the lordship of Jesus Paul asks who are we to judge another He answers to his own master he says hinting at the fact that we're not each other's master He even says the Lord Is able to make his children Stand Right, The ones that have different convictions than you He's able to make them stand God's sovereign in their life Just like he's sovereign in yours Verse 6 Paul's point, whether you are a participator or abstainer, whether you're strong or weak, however you want to term it, whether you, no matter where you're at on this in your conscience, you are to do what you do as unto the Lord. You do it in honor of the Lord. You do it with giving thanks to the Lord. So the meat eater eats their meat with a thankful heart to the glory of God, and the vegetarian can do the same thing. Verses seven and eight, Paul says, None of us just do our own thing, we all belong to Jesus. As Christians, we are all in agreement that Jesus is the boss, right? Not us. That's, that's who the Lord, that's what Lord means. Boss, master, ruler. He's the one in charge. We answer to him in all that we do, whether we live or whether we die, we answer to the Lord. We're accountable to him in life, and we will give an account to him in death. In verse 9, what does he point, what does he point out there? Christ died for what? He died that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Now listen to me. It is anti-gospel to act as your own Lord or as Lord of another. You did not die for your sins or anyone else's sins. Jesus did. So it is a front to the gospel for me to act like I'm your Lord and make personal decisions for you. Or you act like you're mine. Or for me to act like I don't have a Lord that I'm going to give an account to. Jesus is the one on the throne. Verses 10 and 12 he says, "So, so why would you even pass judgment?" Why sit and nitpick your brother? He's going to give an account to God, and you will too. Jesus is the one everyone's going to bow to and confess to, not us or our ideologies or our viewpoints. So he does a couple of things in this section on Lordship. The first one, he reminds us that we personally belong to Jesus. And don't miss that. Whatever action you take, whatever decision you make, is before the eyes of Jesus. Jesus. And if you're a Christian, your whole life and every decision are to be made with the understanding that you are not your own. There are some things that Jesus' word, the Bible, clearly tells us are sinful. And you don't get to do that to the glory of God or with thanksgiving in your heart. Right? You can't get drunk, having an affair, look at pornography, gossip, slander, be hateful or bully, and all that in a way that honors the Lord. Can't happen. But in the non-essentials, in the areas of Christian liberty and conscience, whatever you do is to be done in such a way as to seek to honor the Lord and with a grateful heart, whatever it is. There's no time out from that. There's no vacation from honoring God. There's no vacation from living like Jesus is Lord, where you get to get away and kind of be like, I just kind of, woo, you know, send it up. And then, you know, no, everything is done with the idea that Jesus is my boss and I'm trying to bring glory to Jesus. Now, the other big idea is he reminds us that they, who's they? Everybody, not you. Everybody on the other side of your conviction and your personal belief, they belong to Jesus too. And the person who has a different conviction than you on a disputable matter are going to answer to Jesus. They belong to Jesus. And just because you think it's wrong for you to eat the ribeye doesn't mean that they can't eat ri- ribeye under the Lord. They belong to Jesus, not me, not you. I used to watch this show on television called The Office. Ever seen The Office. Real popular comedy, one of the more popular comedies that's ever been on TV. One of my favorite characters on the show was a guy named Dwight Schrute, all right? Dwight Schrute was the assistant to the manager. But he always introduced himself and carried himself like he was the assistant manager, right? And that was part of the comedy of this show. And so he would go around, he would act like he had this authority he didn't have. And I'm the assistant manager, and the manager, Michael Scott, would always have to, you're the assistant to the manager, right? You're here to, like, serve me, not to go around acting like you are me. A lot of Christians have a little Dwight Shrewdism in them. And we we walk around, right, like we're like Jesus' enforcer of our personal viewpoints, right? And so, and that's not what we're called to do. We're not assistant lords, right? We're here to serve the Lord and others. We're not not here to act like we're him. So if I could summarize the second point, it would be this. Stop trying to be Jesus. Don't try to be Jesus. And we're all tempted to try to do this in some way because we care so much about what we believe and what we think is right on issues that maybe the scriptures don't speak as clearly to. Or maybe the people have different interpretations than we do. And and they're not matters uh, that are essential, but they're matters where Christians can have disagreements on. Stop trying to be Lord here. Don't try to be the judge. By all means, if you see your brother in sin, lovingly confront them. But if differing with you on a personal conviction is not a sin. So assume the best of your brother. And let's get over it and move on, right? Third principle. I should seek to build up and not tear down. I should seek to build up and not tear down. The next half of the chapter in chapter 14 largely deals with how the strong person, or the participator if you will, stewards their liberty and their convictions. They have a responsibility to do so in a way that is loving. Both the strong and the weak are to pursue building up in the body of Christ and not tearing down. Look at verses 13 through 19. You see that section there in your Bibles are on the screen. But Let me read verse 13 again. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then Paul unpacks this idea of stumbling block and hindrance in that section. So what does he mean by stumbling block and hindrance? These words seem to be synonyms here. Some people think it's two different ideas. I don't. Best I can tell, it's, 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 it's synonyms. And the idea being we should not do something that would cause spiritual harm or bring spiritual ruin to another. That's the idea. This isn't about offending people because they don't like that you do something that they don't do. That is not what it means to cause someone to stumble. I cannot believe they do that. Well, get over it. I can't believe they do, don't do do that. We'll get over it. That's not not what this is about, right? Paul's addressed that already. Stop judging people. So it's not about, well, I just don't like something, or I get perturbed, or I get bothered that they do this or they do that, so I'm going to start a blog, or or I'm going to create a whole Twitter account where I just complain all the time. That's not at all the point here. The point here is do not bring spiritual harm and spiritual ruin to another person. I think Paul would rebuke the mindset that says, well, I just don't think any Christian should blank, so I'm really bothered that they blank, and I'm going to gossip about it. Your personal convictions and my personal convictions are not the Bible. We don't get to do that. That's not the point of this. That's not what it means to be a stumbling block. This is about doing something that causes spiritual harm and ruin. And best we can tell from the context, let me give you a scenario of what might have happened in Rome. Believers get together for a meal. Maybe some, some scholars even say it may have been they had these things called um, love feasts, which is kind of a weird-sounding term. But it was when they would get together, and they would just share food. And, man, people that didn't have food, they have food now. And everybody comes in, kind of like a big potluck, right? They had a lot of poor people in the early church. and So everybody's going to come together and eat. And at the end of this thing, a lot of times, they would take the Lord's Supper. You know, Paul condemns them in 1 Corinthians for just acting like wild, crazy people at these things and getting drunk and gorging themselves and gluttony and everything else. It says people are dying because of the way you're doing this. And so maybe it was a feast like that or a fellowship meal in someone's home, you know, where the church is getting together for home group meeting. That would have been a scenario where these debates and fights would have started happening. And some of the Jewish Christians, they're thinking, is that meat kosher? A Gentile Christian walks in with his... Pork chops on his platter. Mmm, these are great. The Jewish Christian, maybe a new believer with all kinds of history and baggage with this scenario, goes, I don't know if we can eat that. I don't know if you should either since you say you believe in the, you know, the Messiah that well, the Old Testament prophesied was coming. You know, and he was Jewish like me. And, you know. and the Gentile goes, all things are clean, baby. <laughs> Have a pork chop. You know. <laughs> Have a pork chop, right? And they may actually pressure them a bit in the debate. You're just not, what is your problem, dude? I mean, we're free in Christ. What is wrong with you? Eat the pork chop. There's nothing wrong with the pork, look, we're eating pork chops, look, smell it, smell it, right? (laughs) And that's kind of a scenario, It, it, it becomes this debate, you're just Gentiles, lawless, godless Gentiles. Think you can just come in and adopt our Messiah, And just continue to live and not abide by our rules. But a lot of situations, because they were the minority position, the weaker conscience person may actually eat so as to not endure the ridicule being forced on them by the participator. Then they go home and they feel like garbage because they feel like they've sinned against Yahweh and they spend the night weeping into their pillow hoping God will forgive them for... Now, here's the problem. Here's the issue. We're going to talk about this more in a minute. Eating the meat was not a sin. But eating it not from faith absolutely was. And their Gentile brother in Christ caused them to stumble when they pressured them and made fun of them and ridiculed them and pressured them into doing something that their conscience was not ready to do. And they're destroying their brother. That's a way that I believe may have been, you may be a stumbling block or a hindrance to others spiritually that might have been going on here. So Paul's the big point Paul is making is steward your liberty with love. It's never okay to pressure someone into doing something or to mock someone or to sneer at someone, to look down your nose at someone because their conscience will not allow them to do whatever it is that you feel the liberty to do that maybe even you have the liberty to do. All that shows is spiritual immaturity on your part. That's all it shows. And you may actually lead them into sin. See, Strong Christians of conscience have a responsibility to those who are weak of conscience. Or you might say, participators have one to abstainers. To not behave in such a way around them that you could entice them to sin against their conscience. One scholar said it this way. The strong person has two decisions to make. The weak person only gets to make one. They can't participate. Their conscience won't let them. The other, because their conscience doesn't bar them from participating, they have a choice. I can either choose to participate or not choose to participate. So because you get the freedom to make do choices, you have a responsibility to steward your choices in a way that blesses and not hinders your brother. Paul's point is that there are scenarios and situations where it may be best to refrain from eating the meat or whatever. He's not saying all the time, everywhere. Context seems to indicate he's saying sometimes, some places, around some people, depending on the situation. Be discerning is his point. Be loving is his point. When you invite someone into your home, for instance, or you go as a guest to theirs, be mindful of what their convictions may be. Be wise, be caring, be loving, be gracious, and by all means, stop heralding every personal conviction you have that they may not share. Don't taunt, don't tempt. Don't behave in a way that could lead them into sin or feel make them feel pressured to do something that they don't feel like they should do. We must be careful that our behavior does not cause someone else to stumble. listen, he says the kingdom of God is not about food and drink in the first place. So these things should not divide us. These things are small things. Our bond in Christ is much greater than food and drink. Listen, Paul says, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. We've got to view everyone, everyone through the lens of the atoning death of Jesus Christ and especially believers in Jesus Christ because people matter and your brothers and sisters in Christ surely matter. You should esteem them and their spiritual condition of the utmost importance. Well, why? Because Jesus does. If he laid down his life for them in certain situations, then we you can choose to lay down certain freedoms if need be in certain situations. Bottom line, verse eighteen, Paul says this: strive for mutual upbuilding. This is supposed to be a place, in other words, where the strong and the weak or the participator and the abstainer can worship together in harmony, can worship together in love. In fact, Paul says, your personal conviction, keep it between you and God. Listen, not everything needs to to be evangelized and not everything needs an evangelist. Man, if we were as passionate about sharing the gospel as we were about some of our personal convictions, we might win the world. (laughs) But what good is it? What good is it if we convince the world to do something or to not do something that in the end they're gonna bust hell wide open anyway? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus, not political opinions or what you do or don't do or your view of homeschooling or your view of alcohol or or whatever it may be. Keep the main thing the main thing. And our goal is to build up, not tear down, to build up, not spread our personal convictions. We want to see people become more like Jesus Christ, not necessarily more like us in every single way. The participator and the abstainer should be able to go to church, live in community together, and neither feel pressured to agree with the other person. It's okay. Build one another up, love one another, steward your liberty with love. Fourth principle, my personal convictions and the decisions that they lead me to make must be from faith must be from faith. Verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Wait, I thought everything was clean. But Paul said earlier, it is clean, but not to him who thinks it's unclean. So Paul here says to the meat eater and everything, everyone else, if you doubt and you eat, you sin. Anything from not faith is sin. So let me explain it like this. I like how Pastor J.D. Greer termed this once. He called it doing something from a heart of rebellion. So in other words, I'm in a situation, and I'm thinking about engaging in certain activity, whatever it may be. And you can use any from the list that we've already talked about this morning. And I'm thinking engaging it. But in my heart, I'm not convinced that it's okay to do that. In fact, I'm just not sold. I mean, I'm just kind of my conscience says, I don't know. I don't know if I should do that. I don't know if they should do that. I don't know if this is, I'm not sure if this. If God is pleased with it. And I go, everybody else is doing it. You know, I don't want to look weird. So I'll do it. I sin. Even if the activity itself wasn't sinful because I did it with a heart of rebellion. I did it with a heart that says, God might not be for this, but I'm going to be in this scenario. That's rebellion. That's the heart of rebellion. That's what Jesus has redeemed us from. So, it's not that the activity itself was simple. it was the way we, the person engaged in it. So you have to you have to be convinced in your mind. Paul says you need to be convinced in your mind, and it has to be from a position of faith and and in Christ and understanding, and 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 be, you just need to be fully convinced. See, your conscience does matter for your personal decisions. It Doesn't matter for everybody else's, but it does matter for yours. God doesn't want you violating your conscience. It can lead to a seared conscience. If in your heart you feel you shouldn't do whatever it may be, even though the Bible might even permit it or is silent on it or whatever, it's a debatable matter, you should not do that thing. If your conscience changes over time on that issue, well, that's a different story. But you have a responsibility to not sin by violating your conscience that God has given you. It's it's a safeguard for you. The final thing, number five, in all things I should strive to be like Christ. Let me read to you. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 that we didn't read earlier. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul's point here is that the spirit and the attitude of Jesus is to invade and pervade the church. We are to bear with one another. The strong is to bear with the weak, the weak with the strong. We are to be about pleasing, our, not pleasing ourselves, but building others up for their good. He gives the example of Christ. Christ came to suffer. Christ came to serve rather than be served. He didn't come to please himself. And he is our example. We should love and build one another up and be willing to lay things down because Christ laid down his life for us. And everywhere else in the world, the, the, the strong Runs over the weak. Everywhere else in the world, strong winds, runs, runs right over. That's how it works in government. That's how it works in high school. That's how it works on a playground. Strong rules. And we are supposed to be countercultural. And we serve a king who, has, who is stronger than we can possibly imagine and who laid down his life for those of us who were weak and in our sin. While we were yet weak, Paul says in Romans, Christ died for the ungodly. Weak in a different way in that context. See, and we're his people. We're his people, so we're supposed to show a better way. But he cannot be your example until he's your savior. He can't. You cannot follow the example of Christ unless you're trusting in Christ as Savior. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. None of us have gotten it right. We've all judged others when we shouldn't. We've all behaved in ungodly ways. None of us have lived up to Jesus' example, not a single one of us. There ain't a person in this room that can say, I've perfectly followed the example of Christ. That's why we need him, not just as an example, we need him as Savior. We need the one who came and laid down his life. So that we might live, we need the one who bore our sins in His body and died on the cross for our sins and took the punishment we deserve, so that we can be forgiven and experience God's grace. So let me ask you: really, the first, a lot of this is really about Christians stewarding our liberty, but you can't steward what you don't have, right? You can't make decisions about what does my freedom in Christ mean if you haven't been yet set free in Christ you're still slave to sin, and we all are outside of Jesus, doing things our way, we're in control. We've got the steering wheel. We're Lord. Step one in being set free is recognizing your need for a Savior, to save you from yourself and from your sin and from the destruction you're headed for. Turning away from your sin and embracing Christ who laid down his life for you. As your Lord, as your boss, as your new boss, and as your Savior. Believing He died in your place on the cross and rose again from the dead to set you free and to make you His. And trusting and following Him. If you've never done that, that's the most important kind of freedom we can talk about today. And then, as a believer in Christ, let me ask you how are you stewarding your convictions? Are you judging others for being different than you? Are you a better evangelist for personal convictions than you are for the gospel? Are you stewarding your convictions in a way that runs roughshod over people that have different convictions than you? Are you taking no account to the conscience of others? All these are things we have to ask each other because the culture of the church is supposed to be shaped and informed by the gospel. By the gospel. And that's what Paul's laying out for us. He's saying, here's how you steward liberty. Here's how you steward church unity. Here's how you can have different views and serve the same Lord. Let's pray.